0: My global IQ is 109, Hi 100. my 199, 100, 147, 126. Hello, everyone. At one time, the typical daily intake at the National Security Agency included nearly 445,000 email address books from Yahoo and over 82,000 from Facebook. I'm Jim Falk, President of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, and thank you so much for joining us. Today's conversation is with Bart Gelman, who joins us to discuss his new book, Dark Mirror, Edward Snowden in the American Surveillance State, which was published just a few weeks ago by Penguin Press. As we will learn shortly, Snowden's leaks, or as someone might say, revelations, unveiled to those charged with overseeing the National Security Agency, as well as the American public, the vast power of the government to gather, possess, and to actually hold on to data, circumventing what were assumed to be acceptable boundaries. I read the book this past weekend and I found it absolutely fascinating and also an enjoyable read. Let me tell you a little bit about Bart. Bart is a graduate of Princeton University. He was a Rhodes Scholar and he's currently a staff writer at the Atlantic Magazine um, and a senior fellow at the Century Foundation. He also wrote the New York Times bestseller, Angler, all about Vice President Dick Cheney. Uh, his strong association with the Washington Post goes back just slightly over two decades, where he covered legal, diplomatic, military matters, and he was also the bureau chief in Jerusalem for a few years. In 2013, Edward Snowden reached out to him, as well as to Glenn Greenwald and to documentary filmmaker, Laura portress And from those initial contacts, the story begins. Uh, Bart led the post coverage of uh, the NSA and Edward Snowden and all of the revelations. And we'll be touching on most of that, as much as that as we can today. He won the Pulitzer Prize in 2014, he and his team, uh, Pulitzer Prize for Public Service for their coverage of Edward Snowden and the NSA. And in 2002, he also won a Pulitzer with his Washington Post team uh, for the coverage of the 9-11 terrorist attack and the aftermath. So Bart, congratulations on your book. Like I said, I enjoyed it, learned a lot. Thanks very much for inviting me. As I mentioned, this is a question that I've listened to one or two of your podcasts and you get asked all the time and you get probably a little tired of responding, but it is a question that people probably tend to have while reasonable people may disagree on how uh, Edward Snowden uh, released the data and what he released. You do not describe him either, neither as a spy, nor
1: do you consider his acts to be acts of treason. Uh, why not? Well, treason is well-defined in the Constitution, and it's, it's a simple test. Uh, it means that you've transferred your allegiance to another country at war with the United States with the intention of harming your own country, with the intention of harming the United States. Uh, and there's just no plausible argument that this is has anything to do with it. It's he uh, has not transferred his allegiance to another country. He's living in another country that he did not choose to go to. Uh, he is he, he described his reasons uh, for what he did as as in, in terms of the public interest of the United States. He wanted to help his fellow citizens decide what the boundaries should be of secret intelligence in a free society. Uh, and there's, uh, there's no one actually um, at a senior level in the US government who is familiar with the case who doubts that that was his actual motive. Uh, they have lots of criticism on lots of grounds, uh, but they don't doubt that he did, but did what he did based on his own concept of what was good for his own country.
0: And as you note in the book and from other conversations, he probably really didn't take any of the information To Russia, is that a fair? But I
1: I I know what steps he took. He 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 destroyed um, the material, and he destroyed his access to the material in any other place uh, before he left Hong Kong. Uh, He uh, he had a specific encryption key, and he and he destroyed it, uh, which meant that uh, the data was inaccessible to him uh, then or later.
0: So when he left Hong when he went to Hong Kong he really i don't think was planning on going to moscow was he he really hoped to go to another country or other countries
1: well he was uh he was aiming for ecuador he, his uh itinerary which i've seen uh w- took him uh via moscow and then havana to ecuador uh that was just his changes of plane uh the us government the state department canceled his passport in an attempt to to prevent him from traveling uh they tried to prevent him from leaving hong kong they canceled the passport just too late he was already mid-air on the way to moscow when he got there he did not have valid travel papers going forward and so he got stuck in the moscow airport for uh something like a month while he worked through his uh request for political asylum in russia
0: mm-hmm. and you know most of this happened what well, did happen in 2013 and so that's, you know, seven years ago, and I'd forgotten a, a, a lot of it. And if someone had said to me, was Snowden a high school dropout, or did he complete college? I would have said, yeah, he was a high school dropout. But that only meant that he did not get a diploma from a high school. Tell our audience a bit more about just how smart he was and how accomplished in computer skills and. He's uh,
1: he's an autodidact. Um, he's- I mean, quite honestly, he's one of the smartest people I've I've ever met. Uh, he had, you know, if if you put any stock in the Stanford-Binet IQ test, his, his testing is off the charts to, to a tiny fraction of 1% uh, of the population. Uh, and he was bored by lots of things that were happening in high school. And uh, like a lot of uh, bored teens, he paid attention to what he cared about. Um, he got sick with mononucleosis. Um, in his junior year, and uh, was out of school for months, and he never came back. He got his GED the same year he would have graduated. He took a bunch of college-level courses and a, a bunch of engineering courses, uh, computer engineering courses. Uh, sometimes he took the exams for certifications without even taking the courses. Uh, <laughs> he, he would he would master you know some body of knowledge and become a Microsoft Certified Security Engineer, for example, or Systems Engineer. Uh, without fully uh, finishing the, uh, the coursework, but he was able to pass the seven-part exam. Uh, so he, he taught himself uh, computer skills and he was quite proficient.
0: So how did he enter the national security arena?
1: Well, it's, it's funny. He, he, he tried to enter it by joining the army. He had discovered a shortcut to the special forces, where it's, a, it's a program called 18 X-ray under which uh, army recruits who have high, who score high enough on their aptitude tests and on their physical fitness test um, can be uh, entered into a program where you go straight from basic training and then advanced infantry training and ranger training and you, uh, you end up in the US special forces with um, sergeant stripes in a very compressed period of time. Uh, and during the basic training, he broke both legs. And so um, he left the army and came home dispirited, uh, looking for something else to do. And he took the first job he could find, which was as a security guard at a facility in Maryland that was being built, that was gonna be a a civilian facility that did contract work for the NSA. Hmm. So in order to be a security guard there, he had to have a classified clearance. And that was his entry point into the world of the national security establishment, because uh, so many of the jobs that he, he would later for actually all the jobs he would later apply for required that he have a top secret sci clearance that is to say he was cleared uh to know sensitive compartmented um, intelligence information sci and because he got that at the at the security guard post he was able to go to job fairs and and uh and, and qualify for jobs in in computer science and that was his first job working for uh the cia um in their Information technology section. Why didn't
0: the United States allow him to proceed to Ecuador, where he would have been easier to apprehend? or exfiltrate? Uh, That
1: would have been the rational choice. Uh, <laughs> it was uh, there was a determination to get the, to get him. There was chaos and confusion and the usual sorts of fud uh, uh, when policies being made on the fly, and they just got the timing wrong. Uh, they uh, they they put a red flag on his passport. Invalidating it at just the wrong time if uh, they'd stopped thought about it They for sure would have let him go to ecuador where it would have been much easier to get him
0: And so one tends to forget that he wasn't really against at all in his career spying or espionage
1: It was nine eleven 11 that caused him to uh, want to join the army. Uh, he was he came from a military family a family of uh, coast guard uh, warrant officers and officers, and he believed uh, in the mission. He's, um, he's kind of a libertarian. It's hard to characterize his politics. But he came in believing that he would be serving the country by working for the intelligence services. What what really turned him? That's a question I spend a lot of time on in the book. I mean, the, the, the book tells the life story of Snowden as, as sort of one of its three main features is, uh, who is this guy? Where did he come from? How did he learn how to do what he did? Why did he do what he did? Uh, And it's a tough one to call. I I doubt there was any one moment. He has tried on occasion in interviews to say that it was this or that moment that that caused him to do it, but I think there was a gradual uh, uh, process of disillusionment, of seeing things that bothered him. Uh, uh, He saw that intelligence gathering can be kind of messy and uh, ethically compromised uh, when he was stationed at at in Geneva for the CIA and he saw things at the NSA that truly disturbed him uh, in terms of you know this was his introduction to the secret world in which um, U.S. intelligence agencies were gathering immense quantities of information about their own citizens among others Uh, This is not something you know until and unless you work there because those boundaries had been shifted in secret um, uh, in ways that the American public not only didn't know, but uh, were being misled about. So those things started to build up and bother him. And, you know, it takes a certain personality and we could talk about that as well.
0: You know, I'd I'd like to get more into his personality because... He's uh, like now in Moscow. As as you've had some conversations with him on the phone, and and also have seen him, you've been to Moscow. He's really quite comfortable now. I mean, he does as 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 you said many times in the book. Uh, he doesn't need a lot of possessions. He misses his milkshakes, but as you said, he doesn't have a blender.
1: Well, the the actual fact is that he refuses to confirm or deny possession of a blender, <laughs> uh, and. It sounds funny, but it's part of the extraordinary operational security that he has practiced in order to protect himself. And it is true that US intelligence assets are capable of detecting the electromagnetic emanations of household appliances. And if they knew he had a blender and then they could, you know, look in in candidate apartments for his location and determine whether there was a blender there or not. And so he just habitually won't offer clues. Uh, that could be used to locate him.
0: And he's still incredibly cautious about his personal effects, his computer?
1: He is. Uh, I would go and spend, you know, a couple of days at a time with him, uh, very, very long days, so we would have three meals together. And uh, when he went up to go to the bathroom, he he picked up his laptop and brought it with him. Uh, You know, even with me, as a reporter he trusted, he wasn't going to leave his electronics exposed. And I said, isn't that going a little bit far? And he said, you know, it's not that hard to do it. And if anything I can do to cut down on the attack surface, I'll do it.
0: Didn't Snowden get disillusioned while with the CIA in Geneva, where the agency was trying to catch a Swiss banker in a compromising position?
1: That's one of the stories he's told. Uh, and I alluded, I, I alluded to it earlier. Uh, the. Uh, it was, it was a, a banker uh, from Saudi Arabia uh, who uh, they were trying to uh, bring from a sort of a friendly uh, cocktail party conversation relationship to um, an agent relationship in which uh, the banker would be working for the CIA, and that wasn't happening. And so uh, they made use of the fact that they, they got him drunk, uh, mm-hmm. knowing he was about to drive, called the police uh, secretly so that he would be arrested for drunk driving and uh, offered help get him out of it if he would cooperate. And Snowden just saw that as, as, as dirty pool.
0: Dallas Baptist University is a global, Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ Podcast, and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. As a reporter, can you walk us through your thought process when you first connected with Snowden and saw the document? So, you know, go back a little bit before that, how did Snowden reach out to you?
1: Right, so this is a story I tell, I I give a complete sort of uh, no holds barred, part the curtains, uh, real-time account of exactly how I proceeded, Um, how did Snowden first reach out to me, Um, how did I vet him, and so on. uh, I have the benefit of our verbatim conversations because almost all of our communication, um, even to this day, is done uh, by uh, either live or or, uh, time-delayed chat over anonymous channels. So I have all the words that we spoke and I've reproduced those in the book. Uh, But my first approach was from an unnamed person who used the handle virax or uh, truth teller in Latin. I had to go look that up. Uh, And he said that he was from the intelligence community. He had a big story about overreach by US, government intelligence uh, that was dangerous to democracy. uh, And was I interested? And I said, Well, maybe. Now, the the first time that I hear a claim like that, and unfortunately, you know, I I get a lot of them. uh, You get a lot of people who, as a reporter who come to you with the scoop of a lifetime, uh, and many of them are disturbed or misled or liars. And so my first reaction to getting this supposed scoop from an intelligence source was, you know, oh no, not this again. But there was something just plausible enough about it that I, I, I wanted to keep talking. And so um, I asked him questions and he asked me questions. Uh, and we went through a period of intense vetting in which I was trying to figure out uh, whether this was authentically a member of the intelligence community, whether uh, there was any actual information, whether the person knew what they were talking about, whether the things they said were true. Um, and he was trying to figure out, um, could he trust me to do the story? Uh, because he was skeptical of mainstream media. He believed that it was just as likely as not that I or uh, the Washington Post would refuse to run the story if the government asked us to, uh, and that we would bury the news. And he was very much afraid of that. Uh, I found that to be a, um, a fanciful idea. Uh, it didn't strike me as some, being someone familiar with my world at all. I and mean, that was never going to happen. Uh, but he, he took some persuading.
0: But at that point, you weren't with the Washington Post. And I guess at the same time, he was also reaching out to Glenn Greenwald. So why you? Why you know, Washington, you weren't with the Washington Post, but you certainly had a reputation. So why did he reach out to you and you know, to use the phrase, the mainstream media? Was it to
1: provide a certain degree of legitimacy or to be sure it was read in DC? Uh, well, I think both of those things are true, but I wasn't his first choice. I mean, his first choice was Glenn Greenwald. He reached out to Glenn in uh, December and January, and Glenn did not respond because uh, Snowden required uh, communications to be encrypted. Uh, he was not going to talk about the stuff on open email. He said, please, uh, Glenn, learn how to use the encryption software, and, and, and uh, here's what you need to know. And Glenn ignored that, and then he made a, a, a video an anonymous video for Glenn saying here let me walk you through it here's how you use the software and Glenn ignored that so he went then to Laura Poitras the filmmaker uh, and, uh, Laura, and you're friends
0: with her you've known her for a long time right?
1: Laura and I had known each other uh, and uh, she had once come to me for help with encryption in fact because I'm one of these sort of pro- propeller heads who early on came to think I needed to uh, worry about digital security and the digital exhaust left by me and my sources uh, that uh, I needed to protect myself and Laura was in a position where she needed to protect herself and she got advice from me uh, she came to me after Virax reached out to her and said I've got this alleged source I'm worried that it's set up I'm worried that it's not true I'm worried that it could be any number of things can you help me figure this out and then she got Snowden's permission to talk to me um, after I went back and forth many times with him Uh, So I was asking him dozens of questions, more than dozens, uh, about the purported document that he was going to give me, because we were talking about one document, uh, and how would I know that it was authentic, and uh, what kind of chain of custody could he describe for it, and who was it from, and was it, you know, some low-level staff draft, or was it uh, authoritative somehow about what it was talking about, and this is all without having seen the document yet. I'm trying to authenticate it almost without seeing it um, until he's ready, ready to show it to me. And then you know, the day comes and he sends the one document, this is a document describing the so-called PRISM program, which obtained uh, high volumes of information from large US internet companies. Uh, and then the next day came another unexpected drop uh, and this one had tens of thousands of documents. And uh, the truth is I was overwhelmed by that. I was I was uh, frightened by it. I didn't know how to protect it. I didn't know how to authenticate and, uh, and verify the information in such a large quantity of documents. I wasn't prepared to crowdsource it because I, I saw right away that there were things in there that should not be public. Uh, and Snowden mm-hmm. himself did not think they should all be public. If he wanted them all public, he would have put them on the Internet. Uh, or he would have gone to WikiLeaks, uh, which... Uh, so, now, was
0: where was he at this point in time? Was he in, in Hawaii?
1: Uh, I, in my my uh, early communications with him, he was in Hawaii. I didn't know that. Uh, and uh, he transferred the documents uh, on one of his first days in Hong Kong. I also didn't know that. Uh, It was not until the second tranche of documents came that he told me his name and his whereabouts.
0: Hmm. So we have uh, a a few more Snowden questions and we'll uh, broaden the conversation. Uh, Mike Goodman has asked two questions here. Is Snowden in contact at all with Ed Lee Howard, a CIA uh, agent who defected to Moscow, CIA officer who defected to Moscow during the Cold War? Um, is Snowden serving as a consultant for the Russian Foreign Intelligence
1: Service? Uh, the first answer I don't know the answer to. I am I, I, morally certain that Snowden is not in touch with Ed Lee Howard. He doesn't want any association with defectors. He is not a defector himself. Uh, doesn't see himself that way. Let's, l- let me spend another 30 seconds on that. Sure. If you want to go work for Foreign Intelligence Service, um, the way to do it is not to uh, steal documents, make contact with three journalists, uh, uh, and then share all the documents with the journalists. I mean, if you're a foreign intelligence service, what you want is exclusive access uh, to secrets that the the target government doesn't know have been lost. That's your your first choice. Um, If you decide that you wanna leak some of those documents for strategic effect, as Russia has subsequently done, um, you want to make that decision yourself. You don't want to have some guy dump a great big pile of them on th- on three different journalists uh, and leave to them to decide what to make public and when. It just, the, the, the fact pattern just doesn't fit. Um, he does not need money from the Russian government. Um, he supports himself uh, with, he's got a US job, a US-based virtual job. Um, he gives paid lectures. Um, he tells me, and I can't prove it one way or another that he does not consult uh, with the r- Russian government. It, everything about him that I know would be inconsistent with him doing that. And let me also say that I've asked high-ranking U.S. government officials, including two deputy directors of the NSA, uh, whether they believe that he is working for the Russian government, and they said they have no they have no basis to believe that. Did
0: he provide the same documents to all three of you, or to at least you and, and
1: Glenn? Or uh, he. He provided the same documents to me and Laura Poitras um, in that second trench. Um, I can't say for sure uh, what he gave to Glenn.
0: So once you realized that these documents were authentic, and you got over the shock of it, um, what did you? How did you decide to go to the Washington Post and tell that story? Because. It really does show some of the, the courage that the Washington Post took, and the and the risk as well that they assumed. So,
1: I'm a freelance reporter at this point. I'm a a, a fellow at the Century Foundation in New York, which is a small uh, uh, progressive think tank. Uh, I have a contract as an outside contributor to Time Magazine, where I admire the journalists that I'm working with, and I've, you know, I've written by then some. Uh, some good meaty stories about Bob Mullet at at the FBI and and, uh, extreme right-wing militias and so on. And they're interested in deep reporting. Uh, But I go to uh, my editor and say, I have uh, a line on a highly sensitive story about the NSA um, and it's gonna involve classified information. And I wanna know whether the magazine is interested and does the magazine feel that it's equipped to um, handle a story of this kind? And the, the short answer, uh, which took a long time to, to find out, was that Time Inc. Uh, and the Time Warner Corporation in particular were not prepared to deal with a classified document, were not prepared to write about classified things. I was told by their lawyer, um, I was instructed that I was not to discuss uh, anything classified with my editors, uh, uh, I was not to um, accept anything classified on behalf of the company, and that if I wanted to interview someone from government, I should send the questions through this lawyer. Uh, so, <laughs> anybody who knows my world at all knows that that was a non starter, and I had to leave and I, I resigned. I then had to decide where to take it. I had left the Washington Post, um, you know, under, under uh, with some dissatisfaction at the direction it had taken. Um, I had spent 21 great years there. And uh, it felt as though the, um, the economic pressures on the paper and the leadership choices of one particular editor were taking in a direction I didn't agree with. And so there was a mutual parting of ways there. Uh, and I wasn't sure I wanted to go back, but they had this new editor who had a great reputation, a guy named Marty Baron, um, who came from the Boston Globe um, and is portrayed in the movie Spotlight, which I highly recommend as, as a surprisingly accurate uh, portrayal of how journalism really works. Uh, and Marty had a great reputation, and I decided that, that I should go back to the place I knew. I, I called the investigative editor, who I knew well, uh, at home one Sunday night, and I said, I need a meeting with the new boss as soon as possible. Um, and he said, about what? And I said, it's about a story. Uh, it has something to do with national security i can't say anything more about it on the phone but he won't regret it and this editor became exasperated and he actually ended up hanging up on me i mean you know is that all you can tell me you want me to tell my boss that he's got to meet some guy who used to work here uh but he won't say what about i mean it sounds it sounded kooky uh he eventually um did make the meeting happen and i went in and well, let me add man. something there because you yeah. said it in the book, he called you
0: back and he said he noticed a bit of fear in your voice.
1: He said that if I was afraid, then that made, that made him afraid or it made him, yeah. there must be he something. He realized
0: it was really important.
1: That we, you... had done, we had done substantial work together. He knew who I was. He knew uh, the kind of work I do. Uh, and he decided to just take a flyer on this and, and, uh, and take a leap of faith uh and it was a big leap for him because you know he had a new editor-in-chief who was the executive editor who uh didn't know him well and he was putting his neck on the line saying this this meeting will be worth your time well i go in and i i i ask that the lawyers be there too so i'm meeting with the top editor and his number two and uh and the company lawyers and an outside counsel from uh williams and Connolly. And the first thing I did is I asked everyone to please take the batteries out of their cell phones or, or remove them from the room and so I'm starting off already you know people are looking at me like I've asked them to peel off their socks mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I said this seems a little much but it's it's relevant uh, and I I, I gave him a sense of what the first story was the prism story and I said that um, this was more sensitive document than the Post had ever possessed. Um, You know, anybody like me who's covered national security for years has run across classified information before because classification is so rampant uh, that you can't talk about anything to do with intelligence or war or foreign policy without straying very quickly into classified material. But to have in your possession the full text of a document, um, uh, thousands of words, that's contemporary and stamped SCI uh, sensitive compartmented information that uh, was nothing unusual it was unique and I said there's a, there's stuff in this document that should not be public um, that it that is um, it just not in the public interest to to disclose it I mean this document had in it uh, pictures of uh, terrorists who were being surveilled um, it had in it uh, I'm being careful here. It, Real it, sources and
0: methods, I guess, it as well, described, right?
1: it, described uh, it described particulars of targets and things that the NSA had learned about those targets, which if disclosed uh, would end those operations. Uh, you know, country X would find out, would be able to understand right away how it was being spied on. Uh, and country X was a legitimate adversary and uh, there was lots of news value in this. I mean, I found out about a WMD program in a country of interest that um, has not been made public, uh, but disclosing it would blow the source. And I had no intention of doing that. Uh, So I told the paper it was gonna have to be able to store this material in a safe place. We were gonna need a, a, a safe and a special locked room with no windows and a computer that had its networking hardware removed from it and uh, we would have to ha- have the material encrypted and the encryption key kept in a different room from the material itself and so on and so forth. And I'm, I'm, I'm reading off this list of conditions before I can even talk to them. And I, I felt like I sounded, uh, I sounded loopy. I sounded like someone you throw out of your office, uh, oh. but Marty did not throw me out of his office. And then I asked him to do something that the lawyer suggested he not do And Marty said yes.
0: And the law, the Washington Post agreed to pay your legal fees and so forth. They did, they
1: took me under their umbrella. And and that was a a relief because I already knew that uh, I was at risk on on, uh, several legal fronts for uh, for possessing this material uh, and discussing it with anyone and uh, publishing a story about it, that all those things uh, were arguably uh, breaches of the Espionage Act of 1917. Uh, which, if it does forbid those things, uh, is, I hope, probably unconstitutional, uh, uh, that it, if, you, if you construe the law broadly enough to cover uh, First Amendment protected activities, uh, then the law should be struck down uh, as overbroad and, uh, and unconstitutional. But no one knows because it's never been tested.
0: And we may see what happens with Bolton's book
1: about the release if, of classified material well, there, um, it, w- it would be different because he is someone like Snowden who had lo- lawful access to classified information and then allegedly is giving access to that information to someone who does not have lawful access. Uh, and uh, the Espionage Act forbids that. It, it, in fact, those two elements alone uh, are sufficient to convict you. There's no public interest defense. Uh, there's, no, uh, there's no defense at all, actually and I I think Bolton is in serious trouble.
0: So we have about a minute left, and one of the questions is, and it's a good way to conclude, what did Snowden accomplish? What changes have come about?
1: I think he accomplished uh, a great deal. Uh, uh, Two major areas. One is in the public debate. Uh, If you believe in democracy, if you believe in self-government, if you believe that the government works for us, then there has to be public debate about major aspects of policy. And if the government is going to use secret, secret law to change the boundaries uh, of government intelligence of its own people, uh, if it is going to say it's doing one thing and actually do something else, uh, then the public just can't abide that. We can't have we can't have a democracy in which the government is free to keep any secret on us, including what it's doing to us. So he made possible a public debate and uh, a great deal more transparency about those big decisions. Um, It's also a direct result of Snowden that we are much more secure in our electronic communications today than we were then. Uh, It's because of him uh, directly that, uh, by far the largest part of the internet is now traveling encrypted. That's why you see a little padlock in the top of your browser bar, and HTTPS uh, at the beginning of your links. Uh, that was not the case seven years ago. Uh, what you, if, if you were a Yahoo mail customer, your, uh, your, your email went back and forth unencrypted um, and, and hackers and fraudsters um, and privacy invaders could easily read what you were um, writing. Uh, And now all those things are done over locked internet connections, which has made us all much more secure, uh, not just against surveillance, but against fraud uh, and and other kinds of bad behavior on the net.
0: Well, well, Bart, as I expected, uh, I've certainly enjoyed the conversation. I, i bent every single page. I found it so interesting. And I hope people will pick up a copy of Dark Mirror. And Bart, we look forward to reading your upcoming articles in The Atlantic. Thank you all, and and Bart continued good luck on the uh, virtual book tour. Thank you.